Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so that you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. I'm your host, Patrick Beeman. Today's episode of the ITB podcast is a little different. I'm going to go through some ethics questions for your board exam study pleasure. Full disclaimer, in doing the post-editing of this show, my wife pointed out that I sound a lot like Ben Stein. That is because I am post-call and have a new five-week-old baby on top of it. So bear with me throughout this, and many thanks to Conrad Fisher, the one and only author of Master the Boards, Kaplan Lecturer Extraordinaire, for allowing us to use some MedQuest Step 2 Question Bank questions for our content and learning today. So without further ado, here is Episode 6. Today we're doing a little something different with the ITB podcast. In the intro material, the intro episode, etc., I promised you that I'd do a few episodes dedicated to didactic content uh, specifically to help you learn. And while we're really stoked about all the upcoming interviews, I wanted to make sure that we were also putting out some content for you to help you learn and to succeed on your shelf exams, step one and step two. Dr. Fisher has provided ITB with access to the MedQuest step two question bank uh, to provide some examples for today's episode. So if you get a chance, you should head over to medquestreviews.com and check them out. The step two Q bank would be a perfect addition to your shelf exam study plan as well as your step two or level two USMLE or Comlex preparation. The MedQuest Step 2 QBank features over 2,000 brand new questions personally written or edited by Dr. Fisher himself. And as far as I know, it's uh, one of the only, if not the only, QBank that essentially has a single author. MedQuest promises you that every disease is covered, every question subject is extracted for your maximal benefit. And if you've seen or heard Dr. Fisher's lectures, you know all the content is incredibly high yield. And having got to know Conrad uh, more personally over the past couple months, I can assure you he's an educator who cares about your success and cares about helping you get the scores on the exams that you need to get the interviews you want. And ultimately, of course, to become the doctor that you want to be and who your patients need you to be. MedQuest promises that any student who uses their question bank, um, who has any problem with any of the content, that Dr. Fisher will take care of you personally throughout your study preparation. So check it out, medquestreviews.com. So today's subject is going to be medical ethics. Medical ethics is one of those all-encompassing topics for the boards for which there is no standard recognized curriculum within medical schools. And what I mean is most schools don't have a dedicated medical ethics course in the same way they have an OBGYN rotation or a behavioral science block in the preclinical years. And while ethics is often covered within the behavioral sciences framework, medical ethics is one of those subjects which you will encounter sprinkled throughout any shelf exam you might take, step one and step two. One of the nice things about 
spending at least some time preparing for the medical ethics questions you'll get on your board exams is most of the content is something that's applicable to step one, step two, step three, and all the shelf exams. If you learn the few sort of principles you need to know, you don't have to relearn them in any greater detail for subsequent examinations. However, the tricky part about a lot of the medical ethics questions that you'll face is the questions are either very easy or very difficult. And so what we want to do today is give you a framework to answer the USMLE COMLEX medical ethics questions so that you can get those points on the exam. So what I'd like to do with this podcast episode is give you sort of a, an overview of the things that you need to know and then to discuss some of the highest yield topics using illustrations from the MedQuest Step 2 QBank. When it comes to medical ethics, there are really only a few broad topics that you have to have some familiarity with. And then, of course, know how to apply the knowledge related to those topics. In broad overview, you need to know the four basic principles, which serve as the framework for generally accepted thinking related to medical ethics. Those principles are autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. You have to know a little bit about informed consent and the exceptions to it, a little bit about advanced directives, and confidentiality. This is essentially the summary framework that First Aid outlines for ethics questions. If you've read some of the blog posts on the ITB website, or maybe listened to the intro podcast, you probably uh, know that I myself majored in philosophy. I also have a master's degree in philosophy and am slowly trying to finish a a doctorate in bioethics as well. So this is sort of the the area I enjoy the most and for which I have, you know, some expertise. And I think the challenge that students face in approaching these questions is related to the way it's presented. So the first point I would make is that ethics is different from the law. And while there's some overlap, ethics should be thought of as a discipline with scientific principles that can be investigated, studied, and applied. Legal statutes are the application of ethical principles, and this is why a lot of students find this subject frustrating, uh, because the law in the United States differs state by state, which is actually a good thing from a student's perspective because any of the ethics-related questions that are covered have to take into account universal concepts that can be applied regardless of the state in which a student receives their education. And because the law is so much more nuanced than ethics itself, the content that you need to understand and learn to do well on questions within ethics on the boards is actually quite limited. So again, we're going to cover the basic principles of ethics, issues of consent next, decision-making capacity, advanced directives, and confidentiality. As you think about how to answer questions related to ethics on the boards, really, I think you should put them into a framework within your mind. Is whatever is being tested related to core ethical principles, number one, issues of consent, issues of confidentiality, or advanced directives? These four areas are ones that lend themselves to universally agreed upon standards of practice and behavior for physicians and transcend the legal nuances and differences which might exist from state to state. So let's take the ethical principles 
first. Now, if you had any intro to philosophy in college, you probably know that there are many different types of um, moral theories or ethical theories, ranging from divine command theory, that is like right and wrong is determined by what the deity says is good or bad. Utilitarianism, an ethical framework pioneered by Jeremy Bentham and popularized by John Stuart Mill, which essentially states the ethical good to be pursued is whatever achieves the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. There's virtue theory, which goes all the way back to Aristotle, but you don't have to know all that, thankfully. The barebone framework for ethical thinking in medicine must rest upon concepts and ideas which are inherent to the nature of medical practice itself. And because there's a lot of disagreement amongst people of goodwill on controversial topics ranging from a abortion, sterilization, end-of-life care, etc., the boards won't expect you, for the most part, to take a side on controversial issues. There are probably a few exceptions to this, or areas in which most likely I'm a minority of test takers would have disagreement on what the right or wrong course of action is. In my mind, if you are somebody who does take an overall minority position related to some controversial topic, you should answer answer questions based on the sort of democratic principle and framework within which the board's question writers have written their exam questions and save the conscientious objection and debate for other forums which have nothing to do with whether or not you pass your USMLE COMLEX or SHELF exam, which is necessary to practice medicine. So the four basic principles recognized by the moral community, if you will, of medicine, are autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. Most medical students in the first year of their um, education will probably have some familiarity with these principles, which over the past few decades have served as a, a framework for ethical thinking uh, related to patient care. Tom Beecham and James Childress proposed the four principles of autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice in the late 70s, and were the first to kind of systematize this framework for thinking about biomedical ethics. Autonomy is basically the idea that the patient has the right to refuse or choose their treatment. That is, they have the right to determine and maximize their own health. Beneficence is the idea that the doctor should do good for the patient or act in a patient's best interest. Non-maleficence is the age-old principle that goes back to the time of Hippocrates of not doing ill or harm to a patient. In Latin, that is primum non notere, which makes a great tattoo, by the way. And justice is the principle that describes the obligation to treat patients fairly. Many questions on the boards are constructed in terms of vignettes, of course, and if you look closely, most of these vignettes will center on some prima facie conflict between one or another of the principles of autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. The thing to keep in mind is these principles really are not hierarchical. It's not that autonomy trumps beneficence, justice, or non-maleficence, or that beneficence trumps any of the others. These principles are more of a framework that allows us to understand where conflicts arise within the clinical setting. And as we go through the questions, 
I'll provide a few examples. Suffice it to say that it's not so simple that just because a patient states that he or she does not want some given treatment, that the doctor is obliged to comply with that, which has important implications for answering questions on board exams. The next kind of section or category we want to cover is informed consent. Many moral philosophers situate informed consent or consent more generally as an obligation that providers have towards patients, which is rooted in the core ethical principle of autonomy. So what do I mean? Well, it is a generally accepted principle that one cannot perform surgeries or give medications or implement treatment plans without the consent of the patient, right? This is the distinction between battery and surgery in many respects. Without a patient's consent, to cut them with a scalpel would be a crime. Informed consent is a term that describes a process that ensures that the patient's autonomy is maximized so that as they agree to a treatment or decline a treatment, they do so with the appropriate level of understanding. The four basic elements of informed consent are disclosure, understanding, capacity, and voluntariety. In order for there to be valid informed consent, the doctor needs to disclose the proposed treatment measure, surgery, with its relative risks, benefits, side effects, and alternates, as well as the consequence of refusing a proposed treatment. The patient must have the ability to understand the proposed treatment. Therefore, when obtaining consent from a patient, the physician should make sure that there isn't some disease process, drug, or situation which prevents the understanding of the information presented. The patient must have the capacity, that is the ability to make his or her own decision, and the patient must do so voluntarily. There should be no coercion or manipulation by the physician, family members, or others in the patient's decision-making. Where this gets interesting for the boards and where questions touching upon issues of consent are most likely to show up are going to be within the realm of the exceptions to informed consent. So sometimes this four-part process of ensuring disclosure of understandable information to a patient who has the capacity to make a voluntary decision to go ahead with a proposed treatment or whatever doesn't exist. A patient can lack the decision-making capacity, the ability to understand the information presented, there can be a failure of disclosure, all of which may indicate an exception to the general need for informed consent. For instance, in a trauma situation where an unconscious patient comes to the, the emergency room, there is no ability to disclose to the patient the risks, benefits, side effects, alternatives to intubation, for instance, or to a blood transfusion. And therefore, in emergency settings, consent is implied. Another broad exception is termed therapeutic privilege. In situations where disclosure of information, whether it be a diagnosis or prognosis in the doctor's judgment has the potential to harm the patient or would otherwise injure that patient's autonomy by essentially making the proposed treatment the only option, informed consent may be foregone. Patients may also waive 
informed consent. An instance of this would be a patient with a terminal illness designates a healthcare power of attorney or proxy to make their decisions for them in the case of incapacity. And probably the biggest area of exceptions to informed consent would be in the case, especially on the boards, probably the biggest exception to the requirement for informed consent is in the case of minors. Both adolescents and children, normally their legal guardian is responsible for uh, consenting to uh, their treatment. However, three situations in which parental consent or a guardian's consent is not required are easily remembered with mnemonic sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So minors generally do not need to have parental consent to be treated for STDs or pregnancy or in seeking contraception, in seeking treatment for substance abuse, drugs, or in emergency and trauma situations, the rock and roll part of the mnemonic. In these situations, a minor is essentially treated as an adult. However, consent of the parents is normally required for things like an elective surgery, or even an urgent surgery such as an appendectomy, or more benign treatments like an antibiotic for an ear infection. Questions related to consent and minors can get a little tricky in emergency situations where the parents do not want to give consent for a treatment that is the standard of care for a disease or condition which has or potentially has severe consequences for the minor's health. And we'll see some examples of this in the later questions. Capacity is one of the requirements for informed consent, along with disclosure of the information, the patient's ability to understand that information, and their freedom to make that decision. So it's worth mentioning that decision-making capacity requires that a patient can act on his own accord as an adult, meaning they're over 18, or are otherwise legally emancipated. And in those gray areas, the boards would make that clear during the vignettes. Capacity also requires that the patient can make and communicate their choice when given various options. The patient has all the information and both understands its implications and knows what's going on. The decision is a firm and fixed one over time is consistent with the patient's self-determined goals and values. That is, the decision doesn't represent a complete break from a patient's prior disclosed or otherwise known values and goals. And that decision, in keeping with the voluntariety, must not be a result of an altered mental state due to uh, psychosis or intoxication with drugs. The third broad topic we'll cover is advanced directives. So advanced directives are basically instructions that a patient gives outlining what they want for their medical care should they lose the ability to meet the requirements of, a form of informed consent at a time in the future. That is, they lose their decision-making capacity, their ability to understand information or ability to communicate their wishes. For the boards, in general, 
there are three categories advanced directive you need to know. One is an informal sort of advanced directive based on a patient's prior known wishes, whether told to family members or friends, to their physician, or otherwise communicated in, for instance, the vignette. The other two are more formal. A living will is a written advanced directive that attempts to describe treatments and measures the patient would like to receive or refuse in the event of incapacity. A common example would be somebody who says they don't want any life-saving measures in the event of a serious disease, coma, persistent vegetative state, etc. Durable power of attorney is when a patient specifically designates somebody to make medical decisions for them in the event of their loss of decision-making capacity. The advantage of a medical power of attorney is its flexibility over a living will, since the living will is a written advance directive, it may or may not be able to clearly communicate all the circumstances which can arise within the course of a, um, a clinical situation, and therefore having a power of attorney is often seen as more flexible and dynamic, and choosing a trusted person to make one's decisions can obviate the ambiguity inherent in fixed written documents. The fourth topic we'll cover is confidentiality. Confidentiality is a, another concept which is, is rooted in the principle of autonomy, that the patient has a right to essentially determine the course of their own health care and to be respected as individuals. Confidentiality is another patient right that may be voluntarily revoked. For instance, a patient may allow an insurance company or a family member to receive information about the details of their health and treatment, but in general, confidentiality should be maintained. This is essentially what the, the HIPAA statutes aim to protect. And like exceptions to informed consent, on the boards you'll especially be likely to encounter questions related to exceptions to confidentiality. The notable ones are the disclosure of a patient's disease status in terms of HIV or other reportable diseases to individuals who may have um, come into contact or otherwise be affected by the disease through their involvement with the patient, cases when information disclosed by the patient has a potential for serious and imminent physical harm to another human being, for instance, a pilot who disclosed suicidal ideation and told his physician that he planned to commit suicide by crashing his commercial airliner. In that situation, a physician would have an obligation to disclose that information to relevant authorities. Other important exceptions to a patient's confidentiality are child and elder abuse and in suicidal and homicidal patients. So now let's take a few questions from uh, that illustrate and deal with some of the things we discussed before. We'll just do a few now, and I'll save some more for part two of the medical ethics for the USMLE and Comlex podcast. A young accident victim has been in a persistent vegetative state for several months. Family members have insisted that everything possible be done to keep the patient alive. What should you do regarding the family's request? A. The request must be honored because the family members insisted you do everything possible. B. Your adherence to the family's request depends on whether each particular test or treatment would be futile. C. Seek out other family members for their opinion. D. In the absence of a court order, you must comply with the family's wishes. 
And the answer is B. Your adherence to the family's request depends on whether each particular test or treatment would be futile. All right, so I chose this question because it illustrates a prima facie conflict between the principles of autonomy in this case, with the patient's autonomy being exercised or maximized via a proxy, that is the family members insisting everything possible be done to keep the patient alive, and non-maleficence or the principle of not harming or first do no harm, so famous within the history of medicine. So in this case, with a patient in a persistent vegetative state for several months, whether or not to do everything possible to keep the patient alive depends on what everything possible means. And thus, the answer is, your adherence to the family's request depends on whether each particular test or treatment would be futile. Why is that the case? Well, because if any proposed treatment measure would extend the patient's dying process rather than extending the quality and duration of their life, those treatments would be considered medically futile, would be considered medically futile. Perhaps a more clear example. So a patient who is on their deathbed with some terminal diagnosis contracts pneumonia. The physician reasons that the patient likely has four or five days left to live. If that patient contracts pneumonia, would it be considered useless to give them an antibiotic to treat pneumonia? Yes, of course. So in that case, there would be no obligation for the physician to treat the pneumonia because it would have no effect on the patient's ultimate end and potentially might even lengthen their dying process or suffering. And doing that needlessly could be seen as a violation of the principle of non-maleficence. Now, change this up a bit. This is a young accident victim in a persistent vegetative state. That's all we know based on the vignette. The second piece of information we have is that the family insists that, quote, everything possible be done to keep the patient alive. Without other details, we don't know if giving this particular patient an antibiotic or doing a liver transplant or starting dialysis would provide any benefit for the patient's health, their quality of life, or the duration of their life. And because of this, each particular treatment measure needs to be evaluated on its own terms. Let's take another one. A patient has been under your care for several years. She has had five healthy live children and is 34 years old. She is two months pregnant and is requesting termination of her pregnancy. You are the only obstetrician in your state performing abortions or terminations of pregnancy. You have recently decided you can no longer perform terminations of pregnancy for your own personal reasons. There is no other physician nearby to perform the procedure. Which of the following is most appropriate? A. Seek legal opinion. B. Assess the father of the baby's opinion on the matter. C. There is no obligation to perform the termination. D. Recommend counseling. Or E. There is a moral obligation to perform the termination. It seems like on a lot of exams within medical school, there's always one question related to the ethics surrounding abortion. For board exam purposes, you should keep in mind that a patient who requests a termination of pregnancy from a physician who does not perform terminations represents a prima facie conflict between autonomy, the patient's desire to receive a termination, and the physician's convictions related to his or her own personal beliefs and which are rooted in a desire to do no harm to the patient. 
For the boards, keep in mind that a physician has the right to conscientiously object to providing abortions, but also that the woman has a right to obtain the abortion. What she doesn't have a right to is the, the specific physician's performance of an abortion. So regardless of which side you come down on in this debate, recognize when you're clicking your answer choice that the physician has the right to abstain from procedures which are at odds with his or her moral beliefs and that the patient has the right to obtain an abortion. Hence, the answer is, there is no obligation to perform the termination. The ethical resolution in this case is for the physician not to prevent the patient from obtaining the desired procedure, but also is not him or herself obligated to perform it. And the final one for part one of this series, a 10-year-old girl who is a Jehovah's Witness is brought to the ER after a car accident. She needs IV fluids and a blood transfusion. The mother refuses consent for fluids in the transfusion, saying it's against their religion. Your next step in the management of this patient will be to A. Consult with the on-call judge B. Get an emergency court order C. Comply with the mother's request D. Get an emergency ethics consult or E. Administer fluids and transfusion. And the answer is E, administer fluids and the transfusion. Okay, so this is another case which you can think of as describing a prima facie conflict between the principle of autonomy, which for minors is exercised by proxy through their legal guardians in general, right? But there are exceptions like we noted before. And beneficence, the need to do what is good for the patient. A patient who needs fluid resuscitation and a transfusion for acute blood loss anemia generally should receive those treatments. Now, the conflict here exists because the patient is a minor. One of the exceptions to the usual principles of informed consent, namely that the legal guardian gives consent for their minor child for medical care is in emergency situations. Because transfusions and fluid resuscitation are seen as standard medical practices, there is a clear and imminent threat to the life of the patient. The doctor can overrule a parent's refusal of care because this would be tantamount to child abuse. Had this vignette been different, and we were talking about an 18-year-old female who presented after a car accident who had significant bleeding and required IV fluids and blood transfusion, but who refused it of her own volition, understanding the consequences, having been told the rationale, the re risks, benefits, alternatives of the treatment, and voluntarily decided to decline it, the physician would have to comply with the patient's request. All right, so there's a little three questions of the type that might show up on your board exams related to medical ethics. In part two, we will go over some more questions on medical ethics. This week's music is brought to you by the band Say Anything. The track is Burn a Miracle off the album Anarchy, My Dear. I'd like to thank Equal Vision Records and Max Bemis again for letting me use
please stay tuned for the show. And if you like this show, please leave a review and a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe. As always, study smarter, not harder. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Exam, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical Licensing Exam, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, or National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of their respective trademark owners. Content discussed during this program is the property of Inside the Boards, the attributed trademark owner, and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to their respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.